Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Yoast SEO podcast. We are joined today by a friend of the company in many ways and a friend of many people inside the company by now, uh, Phil Nottingham. Thank you, Phil, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure to be here. As we were talking just before the show, you um, well, you have a history of going from the creative side to the technical side and then marrying them, as you said yourself. Can you can you tell us what is your history in the SEO industry? Yeah, sure. So I, I started um, my career actually in in kind of the creative sector in theatre. So I I studied theatre directing at, at drama school in London, and then after that um, was working in that space for a while, doing a lot of lighting and sound and and. Uh, and kind of bit of acting and this sort of stuff. Then trained as a stuntman for a while and worked as a kind of a stunt performer in films. Um, And, you know, eventually kind of ran out of money as one is wont to do in that kind of world. And then uh, sort of found um, some interest in kind of the marketing side and the the technical side of video and was working for a company that do, um, that that back in the day was doing um, transport streaming coding. So essentially like, you know, all the the complicated technical things that you needed to do to get something from the camera onto the TV screen via satellite and cable. So it was kind of got really interested in that space. And then from there, ended up taking a job with a, a company called um, Distilled in London, uh, who are now owned by uh, Brain Labs, and, uh, or have merged with Brain Labs rather. And um, yeah, at the time I kind of there from there learned uh, SEO and then realized, well, hold on a minute, I have, I have three kind of interesting little bits of expertise here. I understand marketing. I understand the creative side of um, video and content creation. And I understand the very sort of technical delivery aspects of video as well. And realized that as, you know, kind of video was emerging as a, as a space and YouTube was becoming more popular and and essentially video was becoming a marketing tool around whenever this is 2010, 2011, um, that I was perhaps uniquely positioned to understand how this all fits together and, and uh, provide advice on it. So kind of then built uh, a career off the back of that and I'm still doing that today. Yeah. So um, you worked at Wistia for a while. I don't know whether you uh, did. Yeah. W- I want to. I want to elaborate on that. But you, after you left Distilled, which is a company that many people in the SEO world will know mm-hmm. uh, because they put out a whole lot of good content uh, for for quite a while there. Um, why did you move to to Wistia? What was it that you did did there? Yeah, so so I then uh, left Distilled and went to uh, to Wistia in Boston and and kind of helped them. I think uh, you know kind of market to marketers essentially. So brought brought that understanding to to formalize a bit more of Wistia's content strategy and all the the work that they were doing with video. They have a really good video team there, so I was able to bring a bit of strategic thinking to their production expertise and help them work out what to make, how to distribute it, how to uh, to approach marketing from a broad perspective, and then also how to market their products, which were obviously around video itself, to sort of work on the product marketing side of that and the um, the kind of brand marketing side of that. So, yeah, I was doing that for about five years with Wistia and helping them kind of grow into you know, now quite a prominent um, platform within the the video marketing space and help them kind of solidify their position there. Um, and yeah, left left there at the end of uh, end of last year. And in all that time, you've positioned yourself pretty much as one of those go-to video SEO people Um, because video SEO, everyone seems to know that it's important, but the the technicality of it is quite intriguing to a lot of people, I think. It is actually fairly hard to do this uh, well. Um, Is that... 
how how come that, that that's so hard technically? Is that is that something that uh, we created as an SEO industry, or what? Well, what what is the problem here? Why is it so hard to do this right? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think it, initially, I think it's worth thinking at it in terms of like progression over time. So initially, it was incredibly difficult to do anything with video. Like you had to film stuff on an old school tape. You then had to transfer it and encode it digitally, then have to edit it and get it onto a you know hosting platform, which usually required building your own little server and CDN. You then had to build a player to get it on your website. And you know, all this stuff was like quite quite technical front-end development work. And then from there you had to somehow get it indexed. And that took a great deal of work. And it was only in like sort of 2012 or something that Google actually had a kind of a method of allowing video indexation. Um, so all that all that took a very long time and uh, and was very difficult at the start. And particularly at the start, you know, Googlebot was not very sophisticated in finding videos. You needed to, to provide all this information through video sitemaps and um, and other sort of data. And really, like only the only thing that could be indexed was Flash embed. So you had to kind of basically get Flash on your website and and then provide all the detail around that. So it became a kind of quite laborious process to just get things up and running. And over time, Google's got more sophisticated. They're able to kind of find videos and infer more information about them. Uh, you still, you know, there's still work to be done on the on the user side to make that work, but it's it's got a lot simpler. And I think where it's got more complicated is less about the technicality and more about the strategy. So to start with, the technicality is very difficult in that it was strategically simple. You wanted a video index and you wanted to get traffic to it, but technically that was quite challenging just to get that base level sorted. Um, and now that's become a bit easier. And then there's a lot of tools, including. Uh, the Yoast video SEO tool that will allow you to kind of you know, do that sort of indexation side quite seamlessly. But the the technical questions around, okay, well, how long should my video be? Where, how does this integrate with all these different platforms? How, wh- wh- where does YouTube figure in the mix? How does Facebook apply here? How should we be dealing with social media? Um, what should we create? How should we deal with user-generated stuff? What level of quality do we go for? All that kind of stuff has become more accessible, but as a consequence, more complicated from a strategic and, and planning perspective. Um, and so I think the, yeah, the complexity has moved from the kind of the technical to the, the strategic at this point. And most people uh, today are kind of struggling with the questions around what should they create? Um, how should they scale that up? How should they distribute and then measure it? And, and that's the stuff that's, that's, I think, quite difficult today. Yeah, and as you say, scale that up. Does that also mean that you always have to create more, or is it uh, uh, very much a less is more thing as well? Yeah, quite. So when I think video first became a marketing tool for um, for the digital age, you know, it took its cue from TV. So everyone thought about, okay, well, we need to create this one great big, you know, hero ad piece. And that's going to be our, and then we'll put that everywhere on a website. We'll put that on all these social platforms and we'll push that out there to as many people as possible and hope that that does something. Um, and you, you know, usually spend a great deal of money on that core creative asset. If you, if you could afford good production, you'd, you'd go down that route. Um, and if you couldn't afford good production, then you do your best you could with some, you know, uh, off the shelf animation or, or something very simple with a talking head video. And that's kind of uh, shifted as well because now, as we're doing right now, and as you know, companies do all the time, you can create simple videos very, very quickly and very cheaply, and just screencasting tools and, and webcam recording tools enable this. So the essential barrier to, to production has become so low that we're all then instead of talking about making video as a commod as, as a as an asset that's a value in itself, it's okay. It's a case of okay, well, we know we need to use video across all our different marketing channels in different ways. Okay, well, how do we 
how do we do that? How do we create stuff? Where do we bring in perhaps greater investment to have some external help improving production? Where can we get away with just doing DIY stuff? Um, on what topic should we be creating? And there's that kind of broader mix where video is is a media type, much like text and image that you need to be using on all the different channels that you're working with. And then understanding what kind of video goes where is the is the difficult part. Uh, it's the difficult part, but is there anything simple to say about that? Yeah, I think so. So so essentially in terms of like production quality, the the core question I think is like, you know, how good does it need to be? Well, that sort of I think scales with the amount of people that are going to see it. So if you're creating a let's say a little kind of product um tutorial solution that's maybe just for a specific subset of your customers, whether you're a software company or a, um, you know, a manufacturer or something. Um, if that's only going to be viewed by a few people, then it really doesn't need to be super high in production. You can get away with something that's quite lo-fi and, and people are going to appreciate the authenticity of the fact that you've put the effort in to make something um, very personal for them. Um, similarly, if you're just doing a video for one person, maybe via email or something or a sales video, you can get away with making that very scrappy because it's personal, because it's um, you know, well thought th- thought through and people are going to appreciate that that one to our connection whereas if you're creating a, a an ad that you've got to push to a lot of people or you know a big hero campaign obviously that's where you need to start to think about uh, investing in additional production support so that scales quite linearly um, there's also kind of different types of content in terms of length so obviously if you're creating um, ads they're going to fit formats of like 30 seconds in a minute and all that kind of thing um, the, the preordained formats that Google and Facebook allow us to use. Um, but also there's a lot more space now for longer form content. Um, so podcasts and video series and and conversations and all that sort of content that's perhaps a bit more um, conceptual and intellectual in its nature, but a lot of people are consuming and, and really enjoying that longer form media as well. So there's become a whole new different types of videos you can start to create. And if you think about different TV formats, each one of those probably has a, a a various form of execution that you can think about in the marketing world as well. It's about applying the the things that we know have worked uh, historically in the entertainment space to the marketing space as well, and seeing how we can play that out. So a lot of companies are basically using YouTube to host all of their videos. Um, I think we certainly are to a certain extent. Is that a smart thing to do? Um, I would say generally not, and there's a couple of reasons for this. First is that it's not great. It's not great a YouTube experience. So if you think about YouTube, yes, it's a search engine in a sense, but it's also a social network and a, a community platform. And the channels that really work well on YouTube are those channels that are very focused, have a clear value proposition, and you know what you're going to expect. And they're often very like consistent in what they're putting out. And the way in which you're going to drive more engagement in YouTube over the long term is by generating a lot of subscribers and a lot of return visitors. And if somebody is subscribed to you on YouTube, every time they log in, they're going to see your content come up. They're going to get notifications on their phone, all this stuff. So that interaction with subscribers in terms of that you know, repeat engagement is very, very critical if you're trying to build an audience on YouTube. And that means being very considered about what kind of content you're putting out there. So what doesn't tend to work very well is just having a brand to sort of frame the value proposition of their YouTube channel as this is our brand's YouTube channel because no one cares. And what people really need is to know, okay, well, what am I, what, why do I need to be tuning in? What, what's the content type that I'm getting regularly for this content? So the moment you understand YouTube as a, as like a social network or a, a, um, a community platform, 
you start to be a little bit more editorial in the decisions of what goes out in much the same way that you do on every other social network. You're quite thoughtful. You don't just, you know, if you don't, you don't create a new page on your website and then immediately share that on Facebook, you know, Facebook's for maybe for certain kinds of blog posts and different kinds of content that go on there. You're quite editorially minded. And the same needs to be true of YouTube. You know, you need to have that consistency and, and considered approach to what you're putting out there. So the simple thing, I, uh, the way I would advise companies to think about this is you, know, you need a sort of sub-brand for your YouTube channel. And it can't just be, you know, my business is YouTube channel. You need, okay, well, what, what am I getting from this? Provide something additional in the name that makes it clear what the content strategy is. And you can have multiple YouTube channels if you have multiple different audiences and multiple different kind of content strategies within that because you want to be generating subscribers. The other flaw with putting everything on YouTube, not just from the YouTube optimization perspective, is also um, in terms of like traffic acquisition. So for certain content, it's much more important that you generate the traffic yourself and drive it to your website. So for example, you know, for anything that's centered around lead generation or anything that might be around, um, you know, direct customer acquisition or around, um, help videos, you know, providing that additional content, um, context where people can sign up for your product or they can, you know, have a, a, a chat interaction with someone through a chat bot or something that, that experience, if you put the content on YouTube, what you'll often find is the content on YouTube will rank higher than your website. And then all your traffic goes there where people can't necessarily have that deeper interaction and they're not then going from YouTube to your website. So that kind of becomes a problem. Um, then there's another question about which hosting platform you use to host the videos on your website. And um, yeah, a lot of people go for YouTube because it's you know simple. You're using YouTube anyway. There's, you know, it's all integrated, but there is a kind of problem with that as well because you don't get something for nothing. And while YouTube's free, they do now force on embedded videos, recommended videos that come up at the end. And those can be from anywhere. Usually they're tailored to the user and they're personalized videos that are, have nothing to do with your content. But sometimes they might be competitors' videos, or they might be something else. Or, and whenever somebody clicks that, they bounce off your website and onto YouTube. So with YouTube embeds, you're really creating a kind of a link and, and a, a window that just sends people outside your website. So it can leak traffic. Um, and also, um, end of last year, uh, YouTube changed their terms of conditions to mean that you know, anytime you embed a, a YouTube video, they can serve an ad on top of it if they want. So you then run the risk of people advertising on your website as well, which you may not want. So there's a, a trade-off there about whether you want YouTube as the hosting platform on your website or whether you want to pay for a, a you know premium service like Vimeo or, or Wistia or something else. Yeah. Well, those are the two big ones, right? Vimeo, Wistia. Are, yep. are there any other ones that you uh, that we should recommend people, or is it just those two? Those are the ones I would recommend people go for. There's others out there. Um, Wistia has more features than Vimeo, but it's more expensive. Um, so that's the kind of thing you're the the trade off that you have. Yeah, you know, Wistia is I think great for B two B companies, particularly maybe for B two C companies um, or smaller businesses. Vimeo might be the best bet. Okay, cool. So um, you end up with a lot of content in a lot of different formats and places. Um, how do you tie all of this together? I mean, is there is there one thing that that Britain, that you should combine on combine all of this on, or is that just your website? Uh, I think um, I, I think it's about thinking about the platform first. So if you the the content type um in the same way that maybe you know you don't have a, a location that holds all your um 
all your content elsewhere. You know, you tend to create stuff for Facebook or for Twitter or, or you know, for your website. Um, you know, creating content for the platform, I think, is ultimately um, you know, the best way to think about video from the ground up. Um, that said, there is obviously, uh, you know, if you're building a, um, let's say you're building a central asset of a video series or a podcast, within that, you're going to have a lot of supporting content. You're going to have, um, you know, that core creative asset. Then you might have clips that you chop up and put on different platforms as well. You can have snippets. You can have, you know, little images that you make to support that. And I think you can think about video the same way in that you're going to chop it up. You can have clips that you maybe seed on different social media platforms. And then you think about having a central home for that particular content um, or that particular series or whatever it might be. And certainly with video, let's say you have a load of product videos. I think it can make sense to, to build a kind of hub for that on your website. Um, and, you know, you can do that with with some tools that allow you to kind of build a channel that allows people to have that, you know, more in-depth experience of exploring um, creative video content, a bit like they do on Netflix, you know, where they're kind of clicking through and then uh, move on from one thing to the next automatically. Um, and then on YouTube, for example, you might, if you have a YouTube strategy that you're doing a load of help videos or something, or you're doing, um, you know, quick interviews or something or, or whatever, if you've chosen YouTube as the platform to really build that on, then you might make that the, the central home. But I think the key thing is with all the, the content strategies that you're engaging in, you, you decide what the primary platform is and where you're ultimately trying to build the audience and drive traffic. And you use all the other platforms that you have and the channels that you have at your disposal to kind of support that and help drive ultimately engagement on that core central platform. And I think for most companies that care about lead acquisition, so for B2B businesses generally, that should be your website. You know, that's your central asset. That's where you're, you're, you're driving, making money. I would always advise, you know, I don't think you can lose out when you, you make that the hub that you want to drive people to. Maybe for some other businesses like, you know, in fashion, that might be Instagram for, um, for some other B2C products or whatever, or for fast moving, you know, goods, then YouTube might be the one because you're, you know, just trying to capture interest over a, over a short period for a, for a product that people buy in the supermarkets or something. So it all depends on your industry and your goals, but, but yeah, you need to kind of decide on that home, I think. And um, we've talked about YouTube a lot, but is Facebook different in this regard? Do you have specific uh, video strategies for Facebook? Yeah, I, I think Facebook is as important as YouTube, um, even though it doesn't get as much interest, you know, Facebook video came out in 2017, I think, or beginning of 2017. Um, so it's, it's a lot younger than YouTube, um, but it's increasingly becoming, you know, enormously dominant. And we do watch a lot of video on Facebook. I think the key thing to bear in mind with Facebook is the type of video that works on Facebook is almost the polar opposite of the kind of thing that works on YouTube. So YouTube's really good for um, more like conceptual and oral content. So stuff that has audio is its, is its main feature. So lectures, tutorials, um, unboxing, stuff where people are talking, all that kind of thing. Whereas Facebook, 95% of videos are viewed silently. So the kind of content that works on Facebook is almost inevitably silent autoplay and it's very visual in its nature. So that kind of leads you to two different types of content that you need to be creating and, and optimizing and changing things to, to work on each platform. Um, and I do think Facebook uh, needs to be considered as, as important. It's a great way of acquiring interest in customers. You know, people just sit on there and scroll on their mobile and watch all these things. Um, and it has a different world in that there isn't really a search function with Facebook to discover videos. So it's all about kind of short term, quick, put it out there, get the views and then move on. So usually that means a slightly lower investment element of production if you're making stuff specifically for Facebook, usually shorter. 
and usually very, very visual in its nature. Um, but it's just as important a, a video channel as YouTube is. It just requires a slightly different creative strategy. Yeah. And how does Facebook Live play all into all of that? Is Facebook Live and YouTube Live very much the same type of thing or is that different too yeah i think they are sort of fairly similar it's an interesting point i think facebook live i'm not sure facebook live has quite worked out its home in that world youtube live is clearly you know very it's very simply a like a longer form uh you know youtube experience and usually there's there's um you know you have super chat and things that engage if people want to make it more of a kind of conversation with their audience um whereas facebook seems like it's not quite found the same uh, home in that people tend to join it quite sporadically if they love on Facebook and there's a thing going on, they might chip in and, and have a quick look. Um, so I would probably, if you're doing a live stream of sorts, use them both. But YouTube strikes me as the platform that right now has that that more sorted out, essentially. I, I'm not 100% sure what Facebook Live is going to um, add to the mix in the long term, except that it obviously gives you access to a new audience at the moment. Yeah, and it gives you the, the funny thing I always find with Facebook Live and YouTube Live that we take for granted now. But I remember paying tens of thousands of euros to do live streaming in that scale, and now it's just free. Yeah, so it's, it's, and it's mad. It's it's absolutely ridiculous how expensive that used to be. It's crazy. Even only I remember setting up a live stream for a conference about. Um, Oh, it must have been six six years ago, no more. Five six years ago, uh, six seven years ago, and um, and it was so expensive. Yeah, thousands of, of of dollars, and we you know we needed all these cameras, we need these great big live streaming boxes, and this internet connection. And now everyone has it in their pocket. It's it's a it's a huge game changer that I I, I, I candidly I don't really know what to do with because it's such a, a tool that we all have at our disposal, and it just seems that the the big challenge is the the creative strategy to support it. Yeah, is it? Can we see a, a daily live show on YouTube be a thing? I, I think that would sort of be the next level of a whole a whole lot of these things. Yeah, I, I, it is. I've thought for um, particularly for like manufacturing companies that have um, you know really interesting uh, factories or whatever. There's a lot of people out there like you know who will really be very nerdy about that kind of stuff, and I would love to sort of you know go watch a day just a BMW employee, just live stream what they're doing if they're building something interesting. And there's a lot of people who would love that. And I think there's a great content strategy there for, for some companies. But the, the challenge with that is often the stuff that we'd all love to see is the stuff that's a closely guarded secret in these worlds. So um, there, there's a balance there between how much you give away and how much you need to hide from the competition. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it, an interesting thing. It, it, it is when I look at... Um, clubhouse and all these new tools I, I go like okay where does this live thing stop and where does this become because it is it is weird how we're moving more and more to well to these uh long form content things that that take a lot of time when everyone's complaining about not having time yeah it's it's a strange paradox isn't it it's like our attention spans have simultaneously become shorter and longer um, and we're, we're able to sit down and, and just engage with sort of asinine, very slow moving, not clear engagements on all these platforms, as well as kind of being reluctant to, to watch anything and and only sit on a, a kind of an ad for about three seconds. So there's there's uh, there's some sort of contradictions at play here. Yeah. Yeah. 
say we as we're 23 minutes into a 45 minute podcast i mean and people will listen to this exactly hi thank you for listening (laughs) please do subscribe um in all these things is there is there a particular form of content where you say okay that's that's a form of content that everybody every company should have or is it really specific to every different group Gosh, that's a very good question. I think I think every company is going to have um, expertise within the organization that is domain-level expertise that other people are really interested in that's going to manifest in some form of conversational content. So some form of, like we're doing now, a conversation between um, you know people who are really passionate about a certain niche topic. And that's always going to be really interesting for outsiders and potential customers and and the individuals who often influence your customers. So I think the, the, the phrase which I've been using recently a lot is like, find your nerds. And if you can find your nerds in the company who are really passionate about something with very niche interest and a great level of expertise, you want to find a way to get that out there into the world. And that might be shorter videos, like kind of whiteboard videos or something, if it's a you know, maybe a, a technical intellectual discipline. It could be a product demo if it's someone who's a really you know, an expert in like the world of cars, you know, that, that there's people who are really interested in car manufacturing and know a lot about that are going to be very, very interesting to have on camera and show what they know. So it's about, you know, find that knowledge that's there in your organization that's unique that other people would love to have a bit of, but don't have and, and get it out there and share it with the world. And, and I think everyone has um, a bit of that somewhere, no matter what company you're in. Related to this, something I recently realized as we were working more and more on our hiring pages, as Yoast as a company is growing and we're hiring more and more people, is that you want video content in your hiring strategy as well. You want videos of what your company looks like and how you interact. Um, that's probably one of the things that almost every company could have, like a, a demo of who you are and, and, and why I should work there. I mean, that's a great example. I completely agree. Yes, absolutely. Every every company, every company like should certainly is a few type of hygiene videos you should have. One is like an about us video on your about page that says, you know, has the CEO or whomever sort of saying, hey, welcome to the company. This is what we're all about. You know, shows a bit about who you are, provides that kind of level of of personality and interaction that that allows people to trust you more. You know, one of the challenges with the web is we're all more accessible to one another, but um, we maybe don't have the personal connections that we we should do in that we're um you know we're away from one another and we don't have that face-to-face interaction that was always the hallmark of of you know business only 20 years ago so how can we kind of break that barrier well video is a great way to do that allows you to be more personal be more open about who you are um you know show your face to other people and um and certainly on the about us page yeah on the hiring pages to show your hiring strategy your commitment to um to your values or whatever that might be you know show real employees going hey i work here and i really like it and you should come too all that kind of stuff and um yeah i think everyone should have one of those isn't it one of the things that then becomes a core requirement on the people being recorded is that they are actually able to act natural in front of a camera which is incredibly hard for some people yeah. Um, do you have any tips on how to do that with people that are maybe not as happy to do that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that I, I think part of it is a is a generational shift. So um, you know, if we think about how it used to be the case that you know 
anyone, nobody, only one person could write for the company. And any official release was always in the, you know, in the voice of the head of department or something. You know, very few people would be allowed to be the public face of an organization. And then with social media and stuff that shifted and now many, many people are allowed to kind of talk on behalf of the company. And then it's shifted even further to the next level, which is the that everyone's expected to kind of be on camera for the organization. And I think that, you know, younger people are used to it because they're filming on their phones and, you know, the, communication via video is as natural to them as you know communication on the phone is to me or, or communication via email or whatever um so i think there's that sort of shift and and for the rest of us that haven't grown up with that i think there's a bit of you know just sort of trying to practice and learn how to be good on camera so a few tips would be um focus on your breathing so if you can get good at you know practicing slower breath and being very composed that's where often a lot of camera presence comes from is good breathing so to practice that and to to you know do a bit of yoga basically can be very helpful um also if you're going to be on camera like shake it out lose get rid of some of that nervous energy before you start um so just you know either that might be something as as practical as going for a run or it might just be um just having a quick shake and massaging your face and kind of getting rid of some of that as well um and uh you know always look into the camera if you can if you're recording you know you want to look into the camera and show your face to uh to, to people and, and if you get practice to that and you understand how that works you know just the more you do it the more it becomes second nature and feel more natural to you but um yeah it's a mixture of i think a few just classic performance technique techniques um and then also just trying to get practicing so that it feels less weird and less nervous and i suppose this year has been a crash course in that for everybody because we've all been on zoom all the time and um, so everyone's kind of probably got a bit of a more experience doing that and it's it's the same thing essentially it is and it isn't though because it, the, the, one of the things that annoys me uh, when i'm on zoom is that i i'm looking at my screen where everybody is looking at their own screen and nobody's looking at the camera and actually projecting yourself at the camera is is, is something that fairly few people do that's very uh, point. Uh, it, it's it's also incredibly hard because none of us have the setup to do this well with like uh, where, what i would want is my camera to be behind my screen but it <laughs> but it isn't there um yeah that's in all of this does do you how do you think about auto cue do you think that that is something that people should be using or i i would um i would advise against auto cue if you can for the simple reason that um unless you are really experienced at it it's going to come across as quite stilted and quite unnatural um and i think you know even people who use auto cue you know politicians or whatever often it's there as a kind of as a bit of a support as a prompt if they forget their lines or need um you know a bit more going on and most of the time i think if you're recording videos it's probably not scripted um uh, or it's not scripted kind of too strictly you know you've got a you've got that essential structure that you've written down and you're going to improvise off that and I think that just learning it line by line and shooting, if it's a scripted piece, is going to give you that more natural approach. It's going to feel more authentic. Um, and I think that's a better way to do it. And also, if you're you know close up to camera and you're looking into it, people can still see your eyes moving back and forth across the text, um, which is not engaging as when you're just looking into the camera and, and naturally communicating. So I'm, I'm against autocue. And what I would do instead is just have a laptop or something or an iPad or whatever near you. Um, with the text on, you can quickly look down, read before you take, and then stop, and then and then do your take. Cool. This is something we'll have to discuss because 
we do a lot of audits. Oh, sure, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, although to be fair, that is mostly in our courses where there's a lot, they're a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes a lot more time. Um, I love RTQ, but I do have to admit I've probably had quite a bit of practice. But sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think for course content, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it all depends on the the use case, and I, I can see for course content if you've written it and you're reading off might make a ton of sense um i guess it depends on the on but if you're making like a a, a quick introductory video or something i would, I would try not to so i think yeah. no i agree now and it's also even if you if you are in in the course content we do have to you do have to prep it so if it's the first time you read that text then it's not going to work yeah uh, there has to be some rehearsal and some and like knowing where you're going to break your head over over a particular line. Absolutely. Um, I also think with rehearsals, generally, you tend to find some of the lines that look good on paper that when you speak them, they they don't kind of flow, and and that's when you can change it and adjust it and tweak it. It's actually funny. One of the things that I I'm just now thinking of, but our re- readability analysis that actually helps you write shorter sentences is one of the things it does. It's probably very good for writing copy for screen as well because people write far too long sentences and then they have to speak them and they go like, oh shit, this doesn't actually work. Yeah, I can't I can't talk like this. Yeah, massively so. I think that's probably a very good, uh, very good use case for it. <laughs> we, we should get that out in a separate app at some point. Okay. Um, so... There's loads of things to be said about video strategy. Um, let's go to the technical side a bit. Um, as you said, we have a Yoast Video SEO plugin that that does a lot of this. But uh, one of the things that always baffled me, and I uh, I have to admit I coded the video SEO plugin probably about a decade ago now, and it hasn't changed all that much since in, in how it works. But there's you have to give Google the the URL of the video file, yeah, which is something that most platforms will not give you. Yeah, um, is that still needed, or can we do away with that? Actually, so you need to give Google the either the video file or the location of an embeddable player, essentially. So like the the, the it's the yeah, embed URL or content URL. Um, so either like MP4 slash slash dot um mov file or any embedded bit of javascript that they can see or or another more player so one or the other essentially um and i from some tests i've done i'm pretty confident they're now getting to the point that they can see it sometimes and i've i've found plenty of instances now where videos will occasionally be uh indexed just from the crawler without me giving them any additional metadata however often quite inconsistently and often you know with uh, incorrect thumbnail attribution or they've pulled the wrong text of the title, that kind of thing. So from what I can see, it's getting there. And I'm sure within the next you know, couple of years, that will become um, something that's a bit more reliably automated. But I, I, I imagine for the foreseeable future, we're still gonna, you're still going to want to give that information to Google about the embed URL um, and the, you know, the title and the thumbnail and the description, just so you can have more control on how it appears in search results rather than relying on them uh, choosing it all for you, essentially. Yeah, so luckily, if you use your SEO, our video SEO plugin does this for you. Um, and one of the things that that plugin has to do is actually retrieve those details from the original source so that you can use them in, the, in your output. Um it, it 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 is sort of baffling in how hard that is. At the same time, embedding videos has become a lot easier due to how WordPress does that with mm-hmm. 
well, basically you just drop the URL of a video on in a post and it works. Yeah. Um, is there, uh, well, is there a problem with that and, and all the site speed stuff that, that Google is doing? Um, I don't think so. I mean, uh, yeah, OwenBed's been amazing and, and how easy it is now on YouTube and, uh, sorry, in, in WordPress and all the integrations there. So it's, it's, it's so easy. It, it blows my mind how difficult it used to be to get um, video on and now it's just just simple and, you know, with it, it, to do it um, in all these different formats as well. In terms of site speed, I think, I think there's a few general points of consideration. The first is that, you know, if it's an iframe on a page or just an HTML video file on a page, um, HTML5 video tag or something, it, that's not really going to cause you too many problems, I would say, in most cases, unless you're trying to load natively an enormously high bitrate, massive video. Um, so don't do that. But if you're using an external hosting provider, they're going to have re-encoded anything uploaded and made sure that the bit rates are um, relatively low and that it's well compressed. So once you've got the compression sorted, which is mostly a solved problem now, it's a case of just sort of making sure you're not overloading things. So one of the mistakes I often see is like auto, lots of auto-playing background videos that load up and are usually kind of enormous and, and go on. That can really hamper your site speed if it's if it blocks if it's render blocking. You know, if you're forcing someone to basically load a a video um, in order to see other assets on the page, that's going to be a problem. So the solution there is like, if you are doing something that has a high amount of video assets loading at once, auto-playing, all that kind of thing, just try and do it asynchronously if you can so that you're not blocking the rest of the render. And then you're going to, you know, essentially avoid most of the site speed problems because Google is still going to be able to see everything and users are still going to have a mostly functional experience before the, the video loads. So if they're on lower connections, it's going to, it's going to, yeah, the first paint will be essentially um, fine, just maybe without the level of interactivity you'd like. So I think there's a level of consideration there. So think about, yeah, using um, asynchronous JavaScript where you can and, um, and just being very considerate about the amount that you're forcing people to load straight up. Yeah. Well, one of the things we did recently was add uh, functionality that only loads you, the YouTube player when people click play. Yes. So it replaces them entirely, um, which also GDPR-wise and and uh, and privacy-wise is probably a good thing to do because it means that YouTube uh, that there's no YouTube tracking loading for every one of your users visiting that page. Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think that's actually a really undersold benefit of the of the plugin because it. YouTube is is great and everything, but it does load a lot of ad scripts and tracking stuff, and it's bloated as a as a as a bit of it technology. Is. So it, it, fixing that is a is a huge benefit, I think, to any companies who are yeah, embedding YouTube videos. Yeah, well, it also plays into why you probably shouldn't use YouTube for all of your hosting of videos, and and there's a lot to be said for if if you're on your about us page, you want to to show who you are to actually host that video somewhere else. Yeah. Um, it's funny how within this conversation we've basically crossed the whole gamut, uh, and you've shown that you're pretty darn good at all of it. Um, how do you keep up with all of this? Is that is the, how do you do that? Is that just being passionate and reading everything there is to see, or is there, or how do you do that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I guess I'm. Yeah, I'm just interested in it, and and that that forces me to kind of learn and want to know more that's going on. I think the other thing is just. Um, always getting asked interesting questions. So particularly at, at conferences, and I, I can't wait for them to, to come back. Um, but the conferences, you, know, you always end up having conversations with interesting people and someone who's had a, 
a particularly you know unique problem that maybe I've not come across before. And I'm always really interested to have those conversations and then to kind of get to the bottom of that problem and, and work out what's going on. So I think just following that has forced me to go down different rabbit holes of of understanding the creative side and, and the technical side and um and yeah and I, I guess it's that and obviously you know when i was at wistia the the, the they're a great creative team and a great engineering team so i was able to kind of straddle the two a bit and, and spend a lot of time with the um engineers and the to, to solve some of the problems there and then also with the, the creative team to understand some of the challenges they were having and and yeah, I think just taking that higher level, I'm always interested in finding the the principles, and um, and that just sends me down the rabbit holes that mean I have to learn different disciplines, I guess. It, 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 yeah, it is interesting. It's one of the things that it's very hard to teach people how to become an expert at something other than find your passion and go deep. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I've always I've always been a big believer as well that there, that you know all knowledge is follows a similar principle and if you can get like quite good at learning things as a practice then everything is quite easy to pick up once you're quite good at drilling down into the essentials and then you're not worrying about the the excess and the the specifics too much and then you can learn things quite quickly and and i always try to do that with everything cool I think that actually is the most natural ending to this show that I could have ever created. So I'm just going to do it. Sounds good. Um, Phil, thank you very much. This has been an, an incredibly entertaining conversation. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. And I hope you will be back on the show at some point. Thank you. It's great to chat to you.